Um, so we're going to continue this morning in worship through the word. Uh, we're in week three of a four-week series called The Gender Trap, and we've been talking about um, a biblical view of, Christi- of uh, sexuality. And uh, I, we've been walking through this, and it's been interesting and a, ma- a good but a difficult uh, process, I would say. Maybe not, for, I don't know, for you, but for me. Um, one of the things that I've really been wrestling with is we've been talking about biblical sexuality because it's such a cultural kind of flashpoint right now is, and I've been praying for this, is that God would allow us to know truth and proclaim it clearly without also being unnecessarily offensive or distancing because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for all of us. And we're going to spend some time this morning in Genesis again. All four weeks are going to be based in Genesis um, as our root, our, our base text. But uh, um, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about sin today. And so I always want to be mindful that anytime we talk about sin, that we're, we're, we're recognizing that that's why we sing these songs to Jesus because he paid for all of our sin. And so we recognize as Christians, um, one of the things that's funny to me is sometimes we try to have these conversations with people we love and or people that we just, in the world, I guess, of, you know, relationships, and, and they presuppose the things that we think or believe. Um, and I told you a little bit about that last week, about some experiences we had with folks who thought they knew what we were trying to do or what we believed when we talk about um, these matters of sin and the world that we live in. Um, I, I say all that to say that uh, um, one thing that I've been uncomfortable with in a way is talking about people who aren't in the room, right? Now, I, I'm not saying that all of us don't have sexual sin. I think we do. I'm not saying that all of us aren't sinners. We know that we are, right? But I am saying that I never want to make it a, about someone else, not about us. And so in the series, my hope is that through considering what the Bible has to say, we can take an appropriate posture as we love people and ourselves as we struggle with our own uh, sexuality or sin in this area. So just wanted to say that this morning. Um, I was wondering then, as we, as we think about that, we asked a few weeks ago, how many of you had something you would like to change um, about yourself or that you're not happy with? But I, I have another question for you this morning. How many of you feel, at least occasionally, like you don't fit in? Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, a few of you raise your hand. Yeah. Um, how many of you feel like that right now? No, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Some of you did. Good. Good. I'm glad you're here. Praise God. There's something about not belonging or not fitting in that's inherently uncomfortable. Um, this week, I was able to go out and hang out with some people in the community, and I was just watching everyone in the room, and someone's like, you look like you don't belong. Like, what are you doing? You're, why aren't you participating? There's this weird thing where we, don't off, we often feel like we don't maybe fit in. Um, and uh, I was thinking about this too because um, I, I know you all know this, but I like to ride motorcycles. And one of the things that I f- came to terms with when I first got my first Harley Davidson, it was a big bike. It's actually crashed right now, but it was a big dresser. And I got on it and I, I felt like everyone was judging me for riding a Harley Davidson. Not because I was riding a Harley Davidson but because I didn't dress like someone who normally rides Harley-Davidson. The people that were judging me were not people on the side, but people who rode because I wasn't wearing leathers. I wasn't wearing Harley-Davidson gear. And as a matter of fact, at the time, I didn't have black Adidas. I had white Adidas. I remember so distinctly I was wearing white Adidas tennis shoes. And I would get off to Harley someplace, and people would just look at me like, what, what are you doing? Like I didn't belong. And there's this really strange thing as people where we, we start to conform to people around us and things around us because we just want to fit in. 
So we start to dress like them or talk like them or act like them. And so this morning I want to talk about this question because what I came to a realization is that, and this is what I think is true of biblical sexuality as well, is that no matter where we are in our life, no matter where we are in our, in our uh, faith um, or our struggles in these matters, uh, God has us there for a reason and we are there. Like that's who, that's who we are. I'll say it this way. No matter what I wore, I, I was riding, I was a Harley rider. That's what I was doing. I didn't have to prove anything to anybody. And I think that thing, same thing can feel that way sometimes in our, um, our sexuality or our, our sexual life. So with that being said, I want to keep in mind all that, that we all feel uncomfortable sometimes. I want to pray that God would give us wisdom this morning from his word as we learn from him together. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for this morning and a chance to be in your house, which is all of creation, the, the, the great cathedral of your glory where you are revealing yourself to us. We pray this morning that we would have... Um, eyes to see and ears to hear your word for us today, and that we would be introspective before anything else, um, and then um, gospel-minded toward uh, other people in our lives. Help us to always hold out the hope of your uh, Son and our Savior who died for our sins. And then, Father, this morning, teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit to know things more deeply of you and more deeply of ourselves than when we came this morning. I pray you would do this work as only you can. Be our teacher. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, we started out on page one. I think we're on page two or three now. So you can probably find that if you're using one of our Bibles. Um, we're going to look at Genesis 3. Many of you know this story, um, and I want to read through it, and then I want to talk through the text, okay? So starting in chapter um, one of, or chapter 3, verse 1, this is what the word says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden and that you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And so that's going to be our base text this morning, talking about this powerful um, reality of sin in our lives. And, and if you are a Bible scholar or not, you know, this is where we get the idea of original sin. If, if you're, uh, we talked through the creation that God created us male and female, right, in his image. And we talked about how, you know, suitable helpers or oppositional helpers, right, that God calls us together as men and women to be different, but of the same substance and to be working toward common goals. By the way, whether we're in or out of a marriage, there's, 
And we're going to talk about then this morning the conflict that comes from our human sexuality right in the book of Genesis right away. And so we've kind of got that background. And in the middle of this, I'm going to walk slowly now through this text because I think there's a lot in here that you can hear this before and you could have thought about this before, but maybe, maybe we'll learn something new together going slowly through the text. Look what the word says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. The first thing that is often said of the Garden of Eden is that Satan was there tempting Adam and Eve, right? And I want to stick to the text this morning to say that the serpent was there. There was a serpent in the garden. And uh, the word in the Hebrew, again, I'm not going to try to say it to you this morning, but it actually means to hiss or to whisper. In other words, the name for the serpent was based on the way the serpent sounded, right? It's, it's another way you can say that in the Hebrew is to entice someone. One of my pet peeves, by the way, whenever um, we, we visit other churches and stuff is some of us have a tendency when we speak to drag our S's, you know, especially it bothers me when we say, Jesus because to me, it sounds like a snake, and I don't like that. You know what I mean? We're going to talk more about that later, but I don't like it, so I try to say, Jesus. <laughs> try it. Now, call me out whenever I say, Jesus, and I'm not saying people shouldn't say it that way, but isn't it interesting that it's the sound, it's the hissing, it's the whispering of the sound. Now, there's a serpent, this word says here, and what the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. You'll remember with me that God had created all the animals and brought them before Adam and he had named them. Whatever he said was their name. But this word for crafty is the idea that the serpent is more shrewd or more cunning or more subtle. Okay? So you can imagine there's beasts of the field that God had made and they're just brute beasts. But there's a serpent and the serpent is more crafty. The word can actually mean more observational, kind of watches and, and looks for opportunities. Now, in hindsight, we can attribute um, uh, negative intentions, right? And we're going to talk about that in a moment, negative intentions to the serpent. But just know for now that the serpent, first of all, gets its name from enchanting or whisperer, and secondly, a cunning thoughtfulness, right? Like a craftiness to, to what is being seen. As a matter of fact, um, it sounds to me, and I'm, I'm, it's not, when the serpent is talking to Eve, that whispering is an intimate conversation, right? Another way to think of it is maybe like smooth talk. Smooth talk. Or smooth thoughts. Smooth thoughts, okay? And so this is what's kind of at the root of it. But now look at next, before we get into this idea of the serpent, look at the next thing the word says. Look at it with me. It says, more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh Elohim had made. That's interesting. Because some of us have a, a theology of the serpent. The, the serpent was dropped somehow out of the creative will of God. That somehow the serpent showed up in God's perfect paradise and ruined everything. But in the word it says that the Lord God, Elohim, Yahweh, the same God that's been identified every step along the way, spoke the universe into existence, spoke light and dark, did all these things, created us in his image, created this serpent. Isn't that, that, that blows me away. Look, it's right in the word. He was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. 
So now you have the setting where God had put the tree there. And we talked about that last week. Why, why put it there? And now he put a, a, a crafty one there to whisper into the ear and to, to, to ask a question. And, and look at what the first question, look at what the first thing said. Other than what the animals and, and Adam had proclaimed, uh, naming animals and proclaimed about his wife, right? Listen to the first thing said. Did God really say? Those are the crafty words. Four words. Did God really say? Isn't that an interesting thing? There's a couple of things that are, we're going to talk about in here, but the serpent seems to know something of what God said, right? And he's like, did God really say those four words are the beginning of doubt. And I'm not a big anti-doubt guy, but I'm saying like that craftiness gets right into our heads. Did God really say? How many times in our life is that the question? Is that really what God said? Are you sure that's what God said? Now, here's the thing. We actually have the opportunity to know what God said or and I've told you before, you can choose to believe or reject the Bible out of hand. You can say, I don't believe it. Well, then you can say, God says whatever you want. But in this moment, and we have recorded here what God said. Now, this is going to matter a lot here in a moment. But it's, did God really say? Now, look at what, what the serpent says. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. <laughs> you know what that is? An exaggerator. <laughs> Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in his paradise? Remember that he placed you in, that you, you were formed in? Did he say that? Let me ask you, you were studying along. Is that what God said? Yeah, some of you were, you're like, some of you were like, no, that's not what he said. You weren't even there, and you know that's not what he said. You're like, no, that's not what he said. But isn't it funny that starting with a hyperbole or an exaggerated, well, I'm just worried about that one situation. I'm just worried about this really unusual thing. That begins to raise the questions and the doubt in our mind. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, to the woman's credit, by the way, um, and by the way, she's still called woman here. The woman's credit, she says, we may eat from, it, from any tree in the garden. We may eat from the trees in the garden. So she's got that right. Praise God, right? But God did say, now here's what she say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. So she got that right. And you must not touch it. Let me ask you this. <laughs> She's like, getting there. Did God say that? Some of you are shaking your head no. Yeah, I didn't see it in the text. He didn't say don't touch that tree. He didn't say don't look at that tree. He said don't eat from that tree. Now that's interesting, right? Why? Okay, so there's this thing that we do in, in Christianity in particular, I've noticed, where if God says, don't eat from the tree, now I'm going to be, I get this, then we go, I don't want to be anywhere near the tree. That tree is going to be over there. It's in the middle of the garden. I'm going to live on the edge of the garden. I'm not going to go anywhere near the tree. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it because God forbid that tree. But he forbid eating from the tree. The tree was there as part of his creation in the middle of his glory. It was right there in the garden. 
And so she gets half this right. She says, no, he said you can eat from any of these trees, but you shouldn't eat from that one, correct, and you shouldn't touch it. Again, what is the problem when we add something else to the requirements of God? What are the problems when we say, yeah, I know he said this, but this also, right? I think one of the things we will learn here is that we very quickly get ourselves outside of the will of God. We start to add rules, add regulations that God himself did not say. Okay. She says this, and you must not touch it. We've covered that. Or you will die, right? And, and, and now she's like half right, but this is the serpent comes back and he says what? You will not surely die. Isn't that interesting? I told you last week in the Hebrew, my limited Hebrew, uh, God said, um, uh, eat, eat, don't eat, die, die. <laughs> Do you remember that? God, God said, you can eat from any tree. He's like, eat, eat. That he says, in the Hebrew, it's literally the same word repeated twice. And then he's like, don't eat. Like that one tree. And then he says in that tree, die, die. Okay. I only mention that here because when the serpent comes back to respond to uh, woman, ish, ish, ah, right? Not yet Eve, ish, ish, ah. He says, uh, you will not die, die. That's what the Hebrew reads. You will not, the surely is, is, is translated as an emphasizer, but it means you'll not die, die if you eat from that tree. Again, what is he doing? Minimizing or negating what God said factually will happen. In other words, he, he, he uh, mitigates the result. <laughs> I said last week that, that God gave them a choice to make in the garden, right? And God gives all of us a choice to make. But the reality is this, that there are consequences, consequences to our decisions. There are consequences to the things that we choose to do. And I'm in it with you, right? I'm not preaching to others, myself. The things that we do bear fruit in our lives. And here, the serpent doubts God's uh, truth of what would happen if they ate from the tree. You will not surely die. Just raising the specter to the woman. Now we know what's going to happen. We read it already, but hear the word. Okay, because God knows that when you eat of it, now here's some, here's some things that, that the serpent says. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, okay? And so he's gonna lay out a pathway for uh, the woman to choose that is separate from what God said is good or good for her or good for him. And we're gonna talk about Adam or Ish in a moment, okay? So he's not off the hook here, but this is where we're at in the story. And so he says, your eyes are gonna be opened and you will be like God. I told you um, last week that one of the things that people say is like, well, if God was so smart, why did he put the tree in the garden? And this week you could say, if he was so smart, why would he put the serpent in the garden? I'm telling you that that kind of thinking, and you're allowed to do it, is doubting God's good purposes. In other words, to say, if I made the garden, it would have been better. And if I made the garden, there'd be no serpent in it to talk to no woman, <laughs> right? But God did that. 
I just showed you from the word today that God did it. And so it's the same thing. Why am I mentioning that? Because this is our original sin to believe that if we were in charge, it would be better. As if God didn't do things exactly right for his glory. Okay, so that's what it says. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, now, here goes the woman, the poor woman, and God bless her. When the woman saw four things, that the fruit of the tree was good for food, right? So she said, it shouldn't touch it, but now she's looking at it, and she's like, that looks like some pretty good fruit right there. The first thing. So there's some, some, some sustenance to be had. And then it says, when the woman saw that it was pleasing to the eye. That's the second thing, that it, it, it was nice looking. And it says, when she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, see, that's interesting because she's going to attribute what the serpent said to becoming wise, godlike, knowing good and evil. I will be wiser whenever I know those things. And then fourthly, and then fourthly, she took some and she ate it. So she sees these things and she's like, this is going to be a good thing. I'm doing a, a good thing. Um, now, I know when we read the story, we're like, how could you be disobedient like that? Clearly, God said, don't do it. That's the only thing he told you not to do. And it's the one thing that you have to do. But you have to walk through this logic with her and go, well, yeah, she's now looking at it. And she's like, it looks pretty good. She believes the, the, the key words here are, if my paper was blown around, are good, pleasant, and desirable. <laughs> I really want it. <laughs> I really want it. And so in the moment, she takes some and she eats it, right? Now, um, okay. Oh, my pages are really fine. Here we go. Huh. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Oh, that woman. She gave it to Ish. <laughs> Actually, it's Enoch there. I'm not sure. It's like husband. Yeah? Different, different word now. The third word for, for uh, Adam, mankind. She gives it to him. Now, wait a minute. I said, I read a text you last week that sounded crazy, right? Because it says, Paul writes to church and he says, it was not Adam who was the, but Eve took, and Eve was the first transgressor, right? And, and some of you had shock face, like, what? And I'm like, yeah, that's in your Bible, right? But I want to be careful because there's no part of the Bible that says women are more prone to sin than men are. As a matter of fact, what the Bible says is that all mankind is prone to sin. Let me say this differently. There's no part of the Bible that says those heathens in the world are more, more prone to sin than we are. But that all of us in our humanity are prone to sin. It's one of the gifts of wisdom that we would recognize that reality for ourselves. But so she gives it uh, to Adam or to uh, Enoch and he eats of it. Okay, now we're gonna talk about the results in a moment, but I just wanna spend some time and talk about this. So what has really happened here in the creation narrative? First of all, you'll know that God spoke to Adam, mankind, and he said, here's the rule. Now, we never hear in the text that God spoke to woman, right? Never hear it. So what that means is, at some point after Eve is formed from the side of Adam, at some point, that story gets told. 
at some point to the point that the serpent has heard the story. Now, the questions abound. Did the serpent hear it when God told Adam? I mean, did the serpent hear it when Adam told uh, um, uh, Ish, Ish, Ah, I want to be fair to her name right now because she's not Eve yet. There's a reason for that. And so, but in the moment we know that that's what's happened. So either Adam didn't, tell Eve properly, or he didn't tell her enough, and we're talking about that, and then the, the serpent whispers into Eve's, um, I'm saying Eve, ish, ish, ah's ear, and then she takes and partakes and gives to her husband, and he partakes. Here's what I want to say. There's no way, there's no way in God's creation that Adam is off the hook here. There's no way there's so much failure that's happened before um, Ish Ish Ah is taking the fruit from the tree and eating it. And, and I'll tell you a few things. First of all, it says, as he stood with her. What's he doing? There's no reason to think that he didn't see the serpent. There's no reason to think that he wasn't close enough so you could hand him a piece of fruit. By the way, it doesn't say apple either, in case you're wondering. It says fruit, right? But there's no way that it, it says that it, 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 he's not right there. Questions abound. Did he hear the whispering in his wife's ear? Was he attentive as her caretaker? Remember, we talked about that last week, the oppositional helpers. Was he aware of what was going on? There's no way he's off the hook. And there's no way, and I want to say this clearly, that we end up blaming women. And that's what, the, I'm misreading the text. We are all sinners, Choosing sin for ourselves. What's the word say? And he ate it. He was told directly. He was told directly. Don't eat it. He, he could have touched it. Everything else. Don't eat it. But he ate. Look at the results. Here's the first part. Then the eyes of both of them were open. That's the first result. Now that's interesting because the serpent said that would happen, didn't he? Your eyes can be opened. And Wow. For the first time, creation looked different. It wasn't the same as it was a moment ago. Now, the second, look, what else happens here? Um, they realized they were naked. I want to flash you back to what we talked about in verse 25 of chapter 2. The man and his wife, Ish and Ish Ish Ah, were both naked and felt no shame. <laughs> I told you that. They were, they were there in God's creation and God's glory, and there was nothing to be embarrassed about. They were exposed, but they were, they were safe. It wasn't a dangerous world. And now, after this decision that they made to partake together, to eat of the tree that was forbidden from them in direct disobedience, it says they realized, they came to see that they were exposed. I, this could literally, and you know, in our, in our nursery books and stuff like that, we put Adam and Eve in the garden naked, right? And we just have her covered up and stuff. But I think it can mean more than just physically naked. It means that all of a sudden, the world that they were living in was, it was a threatening world. It was a place that they weren't safe. It's a place where they were uncomfortable. And, and, and so the result comes where they are, um, they realize that they are, naked. Um, yeah, here it is, exposure or vulnerability. Uh, and then watch what they do. So they realize that they're exposed, right? Now watch this. So they sewed fig leaves together 
and made coverings for themselves. Now, on one hand, you can't blame them for this because they've realized, I got nothing on. And I don't know if sometimes people don't like to do public speaking and stuff, you know, and uh, someone said picture everyone in their underwear. Is that what they say? I don't know what they say. <laughs> but have you ever had that nightmare where you're like out in public and you realize you're, not, you're naked? Anybody have that nightmare? No? Just me? I'm not fully naked for the record in my dreams. I, I've got on some underwear, but nothing else. And I'm like, why am I in public with nothing on? I mean, really, right? Is that not, that, that, no one has that? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to go to some counseling. Okay, thank you. Thank you. One, one honest person, the rest of you. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, it's like something. And people's like, it's a, the it's a greatest fear of like public speaking that we feel uncovered. And so the first thing they do, now this is remarkable, is they realize that they're naked, and then they go and they take from the very same trees to try to make themselves a covering. They literally go to the thing that they just did that they should. Now it's a fig tree, right? And then I don't know. It just that's what it says in the Hebrew is a fig tree. But I don't. I don't think maybe it's because the figs. You know, figs have big leaves. I don't know why they did it, but they wove together a covering. Why am I pushing on this so much? Because their first tendency when they realize they've sinned is to try to cover themselves up, to hide. And we're going to hear more about that in a moment, right? But they're going to make themselves a solution from the very same place where they sinned. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to make this right. And they cover themselves. I think there's a practical thing here too. They, they are, in some ways, they're thinking, this is going to work. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to wear leaves the rest of my life. This is a good plan now. They've talked themselves into this lifestyle that they were not made for. Isn't that remarkable? And they made coverings for themselves. So here they are now in the garden, and, uh, and they're, they're, they've been exposed, and they are covered themselves. Um, now, look at this. So the man and his wife uh, heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, so now they hear God coming, right? And this has got that kind of parental, like you're in trouble now, buddy, right? And they hear God coming. But I want to spend a moment and talk about this. The way that they hear God coming, it says he's walking. It means he's making a way. It doesn't mean he's literally walking. It means God's presence is coming through his creation. And they recognize his presence when they hear it coming. And that word, it says, in the cool of the day, it means what we're experiencing right now, wind. It can be translated as spirit. They sense the spirit of God moving through his creation and they have a response to this. What is it? They, they go, oh God, thank God. Thank you, you're here. Thank you for coming. We, we've made a terrible mistake. No, they turn from the God who's coming and they flee into creation. They run into the trees. That's what the word says, doesn't it? When they heard God coming among the trees, or they, they hid from the Lord God in the trees. There, there was no part of them that was eager to meet him. No part of them that was eager to see him. No part of them that was eager for God to show up in the middle of their sin. And so they hid from Yahweh Elohim, the one who spoke everything into existence among the trees of the garden. Funny, 
side issue here. This is the, fir- this is the first um, uh, demonstration of camouflage. Like they used leaves, right? And they hid in the trees. And they're just hoping that God doesn't see us. Oh, that you wouldn't see us like this. You see, that's the tendency that we have as sinners, to not say, God, thank you that you're here in my sin. I need your help. But rather to say, I can't be seen by you right now and try to make our own sad camouflage that he might not see us or know us. By the way, um, another thing that's happened here in the garden is it's the first relational conflict (laughs) you know i talked about how there's conflict between men and women and all these conversations but here it is in genesis 3 there's a conflict created in sin between a man and his wife or a man and a woman and so here they are in the garden in their sad camouflage hoping that god might not find them and look at what the word says but yahweh elohim called out to Adam. That's the, that's the first time that his name is said again, Adam. It's been Enoch or Ish, now it's back to Adam. He called out to who? Mankind. He called out to them. He called out to here, and he said, where are you? That's interesting. You know why I think that's interesting? Because for the first time since Adam has been made by God, he's lost. He's lost in the woods. He's lost in himself. He's lost in his sin. And I'm saying he, but we are lost apart from God's presence. He flees and she flees and they hide and they hope they can solve their problem themselves. And God, all the while, is crying out to them. This week, I'm talking in the series about nature versus nurture. And so you go, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? We're out here in the park today. God's timing that we'd be out here in all of his creation to hear the story of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. It feels very relatable right now. But then what about this idea that, well, you know what? I, 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 uh, I wasn't born, I can, but I was raised wrong. I was raised improperly. Or if, if only I had had better experiences. I want to turn your attention again this morning to Psalm 139, uh, verse 13. And actually, we're going to pick up in verse 11. So Psalm 139, verse 11 through 13. Because this, I think, um, I told you to read this psalm. I'd encourage you to continue to read it if you haven't, even if you have. But this psalm roots us, uh, our, our, our circumstances in God's intention. Listen to what the word says, 11. If I say, surely the darkness will, what, hide me, and the light will become as night around me. There's the hiding idea. I'm gonna, not going to be known. It's my little secret. Look at 12. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is just like light to you. That God sees us in our darkness and in our hiding. And then verse 13. Because, why does he see us in this way? Because you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb and then 14 and 15 we've already read i praise you because i'm fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful i know that full well 
So now we have God intimately involved, and you go, okay, what's the deal? So he's hiding, I understand that, but what's the deal? Look, I remember one time I was talking to someone, and they said, you don't know the upbringing I've had, though, but you know, my life is more complicated than you could understand, and they're right, I couldn't understand it, because of the way my parents were, and it's my parents' fault. I want you to see what the Word of God says about things being your parents' fault. The Word says right there, you created my inmost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. That verse came to mind as I was talking to my friend, and I'm like, your mom was no accident. God was intimately involved in having you created in your mother's womb. Now, the, the word I looked into, the Hebrew here, and it means that um, to be formed, right, to be um, as a screen, to be encapsulated, the word can mean protected, that you were protected in your mother's womb. And I know that can be a hard word for people too, because you're like, man, is, you know, but you were. You were protected in your mother's womb. You were um, held fast there, and you were woven together like a screen. You were knit together. But look at 13, the first part of it. You created my inmost being. That means these things that we wrestle with that we don't tell anyone else about, that God is intimately involved in those parts of our lives. The inner thought world, the inner life, what we desire, you know, you heard that in the story of, of, Adam, of um, Ish and Ishishah, Adam and Eve, where it's what she wanted, right? He knows our innermost thoughts. And so he's intimately involved. That's the first thing I want you to know from that is that whatever your family of origin, however you were nurtured, God's intention was there. Now I want to say something. I know some people, you had hard childhoods rough, right? Like I, and I'm not being light about that. God has a divine intention with having you there. I don't know what that is or how deep that goes, but that is his intended will for you that you would be there. I want to say something else though from this text. I've had people say this to me. I shouldn't be a mom. I shouldn't be a dad, but especially the mom gets me because the same verse says, no, <laughs> That child was knit together in your womb. <laughs> that God knew what he was doing. And that we ought to take some encouragement from that, that it's not an accident. Some of us feel completely inadequate to raise children. We don't know what to say or what to do. But listen, God divinely chose to allow us to parent. And we're allowed to do that by his grace. We are moms or parents because of his favor or choosing. And, and so we have then that God is doing this work. And that's not to exclude anything else, but I'm just saying for those of us who wrestle with those things, there's a reality check from God's word. Here's the, here's the way I would say it. Our family of origin is not an accident. It's not an accident. The way things have happened. And I know that could be a lot of wrestling and soul searching. Then what does it mean? But that's the reality from the scripture. And we start to get in trouble when we begin to doubt God's intentional placement of us or his nurturing of us in that way. That God, and it's a worthwhile question to say, well, so God, why would I have gone through X, Y, or Z? Or God, why would you choose to give me children when I don't think I can handle it? Or God, why would you not give me children when you know how badly I would like 
children? These are deep soul level questions that's worth asking the one who made us to walk in, in those things with, with him. And so that's just a little bit of our, the nurture. So I got nature and the nurture. And now I'm going to turn one final place in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to open a whole can of worms and it's going to be fine. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 16. I want to read the word. Paul says, follow my examples. I follow the example of Christ. I praise you. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, if, if I didn't say that. I, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings or traditions that I passed on to you, okay? So now we're talking about traditions. I now want you to, I now realize, oh wait, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of, of Christ is God. So we see some progression there. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man and that could be translated as wife is husband. That's where we get the idea of biblical headship and then thirdly, um, and the head of Christ is God himself. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. We've literally taken that as a sign of, um, of our respect, right? I was stunned the other night whenever you think, this is a church thing. You don't, you don't wear your hat when you're prophesying. You don't pray. You say it sometimes, hey, we're going to pray. Almost all the guys take their hat off to pray, Right? as a sign of respect, as a sign that you have authority over you. But you know what? Last Friday night, I was out at the football game. And right before the game started, they said, would you all please direct your attention to the north end of the stadium? And, and I looked around, and every man in the place took their hat off. Isn't that interesting? As a sign of respect, that you're under authority. In that case, it was to the flag of the United States of America that we live here that we're privileged to do so. The same idea that Paul's, it's just funny that you see it here and then you see it in our culture. Just accept it. Yeah, that's the thing. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. Verse five. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And that's where you get the idea of church hats for ladies. I love that. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. It is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off. She would cover her head. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, right, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man, or again, the wife is the glory of her husband. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, now Paul here is going right back to Genesis 2, at 1 and 2, where the created order, right? Verse 10, for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. I'm not gonna have time to get into this this morning, but you see all these things that Paul laid out is what tradition, how we do things in the church. In the Lord, however, listen to this, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Now that's a verse you don't often hear talk about, do you? For as a woman came from man, so also is born, a man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. And I just want to stop there for a moment, right? So he says a whole bunch there, but he says, first of all, there's no independence from one another, but there's an interdependence of men and women and of husbands and wives. But it says, uh, and it says it in 12, because just like a woman came from man, that means the first 
woman created was from the side of man. As we all know biologically, every man is born out of woman. We are here because God sovereignly chose to knit us together in our mother's womb to make it a safe place. But everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. And so I'm going to put a final point in this. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, as a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do all the churches of God. I want to say one final thing about this, because, you know, this whole long hair, short hair idea. There's a biblical imagery here of covering. It says if it's meant, if for a woman, it's meant for her covering. But it, and that's how we depict uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, don't we? With Eve with long hair covering herself, right? It's God's own covering. And, and so for what it's worth, that's what I see there. But I want to go back to this thing. But everything comes from God. And I would say this. This is how I would say it. Is that in the end, Christ is the end of both nature and nurture. You heard it said there in the text that Christ is the head of man, right? And that husbands are the head of their wives and God is head of everything. And it's to say that in the end, everything comes together, our created nature, our sinful tendencies, and then also the life we've been through are all fully redeemed in Jesus Christ. In what way? In that he is the authority. He's the fulfillment, he's the culmination, he's the ruler, and he's the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I've given you a lot to kick against there, but that's what the word says, that ultimately, at the end of the day, that Christ is the fulfillment of all these things in our lives. And so I've said, we're going to wrestle deeply and mightily with these things, but um, to deny them would be to deny Christ himself. So now, thinking about it, I wonder, I said I want to talk to people in the room, what part of your life and what part of my life am I hiding from God? What part of my inner life am I trying to stay concealed, right? Um, what are the things that I'm trying to keep secret from him, let alone anyone else, from, from God himself? And, and in what parts of your life are you trying to put together your own solution apart from God showing up? I would encourage you as you reflect on those things that you would invite God in. Do not flee to the woods and hide, but welcome him. I'll pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the reality of your text and the reality of our lives, that it bears truth that we are your good intention and Lord, I know for those who are in, you know, in the room, but in, in your creation today, those who are, um, who are maybe listening later, that there will be things in our life that, that we would doubt that. We would say, yeah, but did God really say he loves me even though I sin like this? All these things, Father, compound for us. I pray that in your grace and mercy, your Holy Spirit would minister to us and that we would see in Christ the absolute uh, end of all these things, that we would recognize that you've made us, that you've caused us to live to this point, that we might lean upon you and know you. And then, Father, for the ways that we tend to hide, 
to, to be secretive or camouflaged. I pray that you would um, uh, expose us to yourself, uh, that you would uh, welcome us and call to us and invite us to respond. Uh, Father, this morning as we uh, consider these things, I pray that we would have um, a willingness to turn to you and not flee from you when we have been found out. May you do your work amongst your people as only you can do, and we will continue to praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.